A lot of you have been asking me for insomnia treatment options, so I want to let you know I have launched an insomnia treatment course. It's a very structured and effective treatment program with a lot of clinical evidence support. So one course is in Chinese and one is in English. You can find it at deepintosleep.co forward slash insomnia. When your family members or friends went through menopause period, have you noticed any shift in their sleep patterns or mood? I remember when I was younger, when my mom went through menopause, she was so unhappy and she could not sleep nights after nights, which later I learned was very common among women who are going through menopause. Up to today, I could still remember the pain that I witnessed such a struggle of someone I love, but I did not know what to do to help her at all. Sometimes I'm wondering if I could go back to help my mom to sleep better back then. Would that be helpful to reduce her emotional suffering? Today, I'm very happy to invite Dr. Kim Yuan from UCSF Sleep Center to talk about the ins and outs of menopause, how that impacts sleep, and what are some common strategies to deal with it. Hi, Dr. Yuan. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. So I really want to talk to you about uh, menopause and sleep. I know this is a topic a lot of friends of mine, a lot of um, clients keep on asking about. So what are some common sleep difficulties or challenges we face when women are going through menopause period? Yeah, um, it's, it's a very important topic. And in the United States, um, before we dwell into the symptomatology, we have found that women surprisingly are going through uh, some very early onset of menopausal symptoms. So when they come to the sleep clinic, typically we hear about um, hot flashes, for instance, night sweats. And when that feeling of warmth happens at night, very often it's hard to stay asleep or they get abruptly awakened from one of these episodes. Um, and the, the symptoms can vary from woman to woman. For the, you know, the American population, American women, usually the onset of menstrual irregularities can begin perhaps six months, perhaps a year, perhaps several years before they stop menstruating. And it can vary depending on the ethnicity as well. So. Purportedly, um, Caucasian women are more likely to have some of these symptoms, a lot more to the extreme version. For instance, some women can have hot flashes up to one per hour, you know, and she may have 10 episodes per night, versus others may have less frequent episodes of night sweats. Um, they may come in clusters. You know, one woman may have two or three per hour versus others may have two or three per night and not all the nights. Um, hot weather can, of course, exacerbate these symptoms. Um, and if one's not sleeping well, definitely the next day's function is going to be affected, right? So some women 
um, felt that they couldn't really concentrate as well, pay attention to the conversation, or they may have some short-term memory, like remembering perhaps sometimes names of people, um, or why they intended to go into the room, right? So that can happen as we mature or grow older, but again, being exacerbated by having poor night's sleep. Do people start experiencing any difficulties of sleep during menopause or before? Yeah, that also can vary quite a bit. Uh, so in the extremes or more extreme spectrum, uh, some women may begin to have menstrual irregularities in their 30s even. Wow. Um, yeah, which is really surprising because, uh, and that's an, an unfortunate trend that I have observed in the clinical population. I myself was very surprised until I read the data uh, and found that there is increasing risk of premature ovarian failure when the ovaries stop producing sex hormones um, causing some of the menstrual irregularities or abrupt stoppages. And so in terms of onset of symptoms can vary quite a bit. So some women may begin to have some half flashes before the menstrual periods become, um, you know, come to a complete stop versus other women may still be menstruating fairly regularly, but the periods may get a little bit heavier some months, a little bit lighter other months, they may have spotting between periods. And so this so-called perimenopausal, um, lack of a better word, period, um, can, can vary, you know, like I said, for some, it could be quite short, for others, it could be extended for a certain number of years, you know, it's not uncommon to have onset these perimenopausal uh, sweats and so forth for a year. Um, and so it depends also on whether there is surgery, right? So some women may have physical reasons that they require hysterectomy to remove the, the uterus. And sometimes the surgeon would offer as an option, depending on what the reasons are behind the surgery, uh, to remove the ovaries together with the uterus, um, depending on whether it is for instance, some women have so-called um, fibroid tumors, which are benign tumors, but they take up a lot of space, can cause irregular ble bleeding from the uterus, in which case maybe just taking out the uterus alone would be sufficient if it's causing other compression problems for the individual. Um, for others that may be close to menopausal age, you know, close to 50 or slightly older, sometimes the surgeons will also remove the ovaries. So if it's done for surgical reasons and it's quite abrupt, then that woman may feel a lot more abrupt onset of symptoms in the high flashes tend to be a lot more severe. And in that kind of situation, uh, with the ovaries removed, 90% of the women that have undergone this kind of operation uh, will feel hot flashes. Uh, it's almost always a given. And not all the women are candidates for hormonal replacement, right? So some women are, uh, they have the BRCA gene for breast cancer, for instance, or for other reasons, they may have ovarian cancer and the family has a strong history uh, and so these women usually are not going to be candidates for hormonal replacement. Mm -hmm. So for hormonal replacement therapy, I think there's some data showing it helps with the symptom of menopause. 
will that help with any sleep-related symptoms during that period? Yeah, the controversy came in in that there was a well-publicized women's health initiative study with tens of thousands of women being studied a while back. And um, unfortunately, you know, the study that originally was published involved fairly high dose because it was sponsored by uh, one of the hormone manufacturers. And at that time, the outcome showed that, uh, so there were a few outcomes they were looking at whether it actually reduced the so-called cardiac events in women having heart attacks, uh, in helping women potentially who might be at risk of having dementia. So they were looking into whether that could be helped by hormonal replacement. And the data showed that it did not. But the problem is the women that were enrolled in the study were older. Um, so they were about 60, 61 at the time when the study began. And so the outcomes show that more women were harmed by the higher dose of hormonal replacement, although it did help with some of the sleep issues in regards to menopause. And so um, because of the report of that study, um, it, it has taken a lot more uh, motivation and also persistence in research in figuring out you know, whether it is really helpful for women to go on hormonal replacement. So for a couple of decades, there's really not a lot of research after that study was published. So, but in terms of helping sleep, having what we call the vasomotor symptoms, which are the hot flashes, the night sweats, hormonal replacement at lower dose, which is currently what's being recommended, either in a form of a patch, which is preferable, uh, there are combination patches where both the estrogen component and then the progesterone component are combined into one. Um, so women that have intact uterus are recommended to have a combination to protect the uterus so that we don't develop um, bleeding and, or risk of cancer. For women that do not have a uterus, uh, typically, they will go on estrogen alone. So it could be estrogen patch alone without the progesterone component to it. And um, so either alone or together, they have been at low dose known to reduce substantially uh, the number of night sweats, the number of awakenings, and the number of um, hot flashes that a woman experiences. Now, um, the two hormones presumably have different function. A lot of that has to be looked into further. So a lot of the data that we have are from rodents, the rats and mice, uh, and along with human subjects. And so what we have found is that the estrogen, so one of the reasons that we have these acute onset, right? As I said earlier, the spectrum presentation could be highly variable. Some women experience a lot more symptoms, some women not so much. Um, and some women can also tell you that, no, well, you know, my period stopped, everything's okay, and, and I continue to function as normal. So we consider those women incredibly lucky. Mm -hmm. um, and so what we have learned is how rapidly the estrogen part drops. So the faster, which is the biological uh, active component we call estradiol in the blood, that's measurable, but there's a very big range of what's normal. 
So of the women that tend to have more severe symptoms, we tend to see a more abrupt drop in their estrogen levels. But not all women, of course, need to have their blood drawn to see if the estrogen is really low. Um, again, just because the range of normal is so big. So if it's within the normal level, but this is much lower compared to what her levels were before, then she's much more likely to have symptoms. So the women that have more abrupt onset and more severe symptoms, of course, seem to be helped more with hormonal replacement. Um, women that have milder symptoms or less frequent symptoms um, may not wish to consider hormonal replacement because they are not without risks. And one of the risks is having blood clots. Um, there's a much higher risk of having blood clots, you know, whether we're taking low dose hormone replacement, um, either transdermally through patches or through pills. Um, and we've seen that even with women who are on oral contraceptives of any kind. Um, so this is not a risk to be taken lightly. It has to be weighted, you know, um, against all the other risk factors that one may be feeling. The progesterone level is um, another interesting thing because experiments have been done to look at, well, you know, what are the effects, not just on women, but let's look at how it affects men. So the research was done and we found that the more or higher dose that we give to women and men, um, the more sedated they may feel and the better their sleep is. So uh, it creates this so-called dose dependent effect. The more we give, the sleepier one can become. It's not always good, right? Because we want to make sure that our sleep is, is high enough dose to sustain sleep that we don't wake up as frequently, but we don't want to wake up feeling like we're kind of drugged the next day and can function. Um, so the current thinking with hormonal replacement is to keep it as low as possible to mitigate against the risk of having blood clots and also, of course, um, irregular bleeding, which can also be a quality of life issue, um, and make sure that there are other medications if, or behavioral approaches. So very often, a fan works, we know, because mm -hmm. when we have hot flashes, we have so-called vasodilation, the blood vessels get bigger. Uh, similar to, you know, if we have a couple of drinks very often, the skin may turn a slightly red. Um, and we termed that the Asian glow, right? So particularly for Asians, if we have a few alcoholic beverages, we may turn red, bright red. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's because the blood vessels are getting bigger, try to dissipate heat. So we know by wearing clothing, for instance, um, linen, uh, silk actually is not as helpful. Silk tends to retain heat, um, oh. although, yeah, so, Natural fabrics, you know, like cotton and, and linen may be helpful. Um, there's also some, this, I don't think I've looked into research as much. Um, some of the athletic fabrics that are um, moisture wicking uh, in that it, it, you know, takes the moisture away from the body um, can be somewhat helpful. Although I don't think the studies have been done to specifically look at that. Uh, and really depends on how it's constructed, right? So for instance, if it's a loose fitting tank top, then it may be helpful more so than a um, long sleeve shirt. And the uh, and then the weight of the comforter and other fabrics that one may use. So there are some combination fabrics that's kind of cotton mixed in with other 
um, fabric may be able to, uh, again, get the moisture away from the body. Uh, that may be more helpful compared to, let's say, you know, a heavier cotton comforter. So some of these combination fabrics, um, again, this the, the woman herself, we may have to kind of test it out uh, a little bit before committing to obviously changing our bed linens or or comforters, right? Because mm -hmm. what works for some people may not work for others. And um, an interesting thing that, again, has not been looked into are the, these so-called weighted blankets. Because we know for insomnia work, some of the patients actually like these um, weighted blankets at either 15 or more pounds. Um, so for menopausal transition, I don't think that has been looked into whether they're helpful or not. Um, just because even though they weight a bit very often, the fabric itself is lighter weight compared to a comforter. Um, so I don't really have an opinion on that, except it's still going to be a trial and error process, whether it works for some women um, versus others. Yeah, but sounds like what we wear, what we use on bed, that possibly can help us somehow. Oh, yes. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. Temperature, we also know, um, we also know makes a difference, right? So uh, most often in women that are experiencing hot flash, we feel more comfortable in cooler environment. So for our sleep purposes, there's also a high range of what's comfortable for some women. Uh, certainly, if we are experiencing hot flashes, we don't want the temperature to be like, you know, 74 <laughs> or 78 degrees Fahrenheit. We probably want to dial it down uh, to closer to mid or high 60s. Um, that will make one more comfortable. But um, the other thing that's interesting, and you'll hear women talk about, oh, you know, I felt warm, I took off the covers, and then I felt cold, right? Yeah. <laughs> because when we go into so REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, and we go through those four to six periods, hopefully during the night, each one getting longer. And so when we're in REM sleep, we don't have temperature regulation. We are actually like a lot of the uh, non-mammals in that we take on the room temperature. So if we had dialed down the thermostat before the night starts, and then all of a sudden, you know, we, we feel warm, we're, we're now comfortable, but then if we go through a dreaming cycle, um, then we may feel chilly, then we're gonna feel cold again. So that can wake some women up as well. So I guess, you know, we just have to find a balance that we're allowed to feel comfortable enough but not shivering <laughs> as the night progresses. Yeah, so it sounds like it's really an individual approach. Each of individuals need to find out what really works for her. Precisely. Then uh, so how about some cooling device? I know for treating insomnia, there are some device right now uh, still going through possibly research period that they either cool your neck, your forehead, or your whole body, you can put it uh, below you while you're sleeping on it. Will is there any evidence about those kind of device can help with uh, menopause related sleep difficulties? Yeah, so to my knowledge, uh, number one, I think it's great to have technology um, because 
insomnia obviously is an area that uh, needs a lot more research and because again people have different reasons why they have developed insomnia uh, and menopause is a big uh, risk factor right because if we do not help women get through this period then some of the uh, either thinking or uh, maladaptive behavior may perpetuate and now these women may potentially have longer term consequences for insomnia. So these cooling devices, uh, there are two thoughts. Number one is that uh, in insomnia research, what's interesting is predating that, that when some of the subjects were sleeping and they immersed the subject's hand into different temperature water, uh, with their permission, of course, <laughs> then uh, it actually helps improve in terms of how they feel. Uh, and how the quality of their sleep as reported by these subjects the next day. And what we know among some people that have the so-called hyperarousal response in that if there is a stimulus, they get awakened really quickly uh, and that the acceleration in heart rate, the faster heart rate and the thinking may prevent them from falling back to sleep. Um, so what we also know is that sleep is more likely to come if our body temperatures drop a little bit. So hence we had for a very long time asked patients to take a warm bath if there was insomnia. So the warm bath of course raises the body temperature but it also relaxes the muscle. But the moment we step out from the warm bath then the temperatures actually drop faster. So we're actually helping the process along for that person to feel sleepier. And so the theory goes, well, what if we help them cool the brain, right? So if we cool the forebrain or at least the forehead, then will we get a stronger signal that this is the correct time to go to sleep? Um, as from what I understand, these um, gadgets being getting FDA approval. So hopefully we'll know once they are able to market to, to a wider audience, whether it's going to be helpful. Um, but again, from what I've heard is that the research look, looks promising. Um, the only thing is when we have done sleep studies on patients uh, for other reasons, let's say for obstructive sleep apnea, which also increases after menopause. Um, but when we have done studies using different types of technologies, so for instance, there are some that we put around the wrist. There are some that has a belt that goes across the uh, chest area. There are some that are fitted over the forehead. Um, is, you know, the universal complaint is, you know, these are not comfortable. <laughs> and that does include the device that goes across the forehead. Um, some of it may be the weight of it. You know, some of it could be just, um, we, we don't like things on our faces. <laughs> Uh, or forehead sometimes as we sleep, particularly if they become dislodged. So I think that would be consideration. You know, if you're someone who doesn't like wearing glasses or if you wear sunglasses and they bother you, or if you wear a hat and they sometimes from the compression, some people are very sensitive to it. So they don't like wearing hats. So if you're one of those individuals, then perhaps you know that's not going to be the device to help you sleep. You may want to go for other alternatives.
Mm, great to know. Thank you. Oh, sure. You, you also mentioned very quickly about the sleep apnea, that that actually could increase among postmenopausal women. And I, I know there's some data showing the snoring symptom could be more common among that population. Right. And uh, thank you for reminding me. Uh, it is a very important issue because some women may begin to realize uh, that, well, while their breathing was fine premenopausally, then there are some reports that here and there, hey, you know, I, I, I hear you shoring or during a hotel room that one may share with family or uh, other friends. Like there are some reports of snoring. And um, so what we know is that definitely with the decrease in estrogen level, which helps the soft palate, which is the back of the throat and the tongue to stay in place, progesterone also plays a role uh, in maintaining the tongue in a more forward position. That postmenopausally, the risk of having obstructive sleep apnea when one stops breathing or has shallower breathing repeatedly during the night, causing one to wake up, it increases by about 4% per year as additive. And so it may peak around 40, to, depending on how one defines sleep apnea, um, 40 to 70%, uh, depending on which study we, we're reading. So it increases substantially postmenopausally. So for comparison, before menopause, in the so-called middle age category, um, it could vary around 2% of women may be at risk of having sleep apnea and then but 4% of men. But postmenopausally, we are about even. And part of the reason, again, is from the estrogen withdrawal. Uh, literally, the, the soft tissues in the back of the throat become more collapsible. Um, and the fact that the airway, you know, where voice boxes and some of those cartilage that suspend the voice box um, become literally harder because it's taken over by uh, the soft cartilage becomes uh, more bony. And then the vocal cords become a little bit stiffer from the stimulation from male hormones that we all have. It's just that postmenopausally, we may have a little bit more of it. And, um, and that also coincides with why some women will have more facial hair you know, or thicker facial hair compared to before menopause. And so this is definitely an area that uh, just because if one stops breathing during the night, that's going to wake you up too. And it's, it has a lot more dire consequences uh, in terms of, you know, if we're not breathing repeatedly. Uh, and I heard the podcast that your father uses more fairly loudly. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So the storing is just one symptom. A lot of women don't snore necessarily they may have heavier breathing or it only happens when they're on the backs but that could be the beginning right because snoring just indicates that well there is something that's interfering with the air going in and perhaps with the air coming out and so we have to identify what that something is uh, myself being asian asians are a little bit more at risk of having sleep apnea um, just because the, how the jaw is structured and so um, and then the position of the tongue because some Asians, not all, may have a smaller lower jaw 
and it may be a little bit recessed compared to our Caucasian counterparts. So if the tongue is already kind of a little bit set back, it really doesn't take a lot, uh, particularly when we go through the dream cycles when the muscles are paralyzed, except for the diaphragm, maybe a little bit rib muscles. And so for the tongue to be so relaxed that it would just drop further back and therefore blocking the airway. Um, so we think that the abrupt withdrawal of estrogens or the more gradual withdrawal of estrogen, uh, again, depending on the woman's body composition, genetic factors, and sometimes environmental factors. Um, again, I think one blessing, if there, one can say that from COVID-19, is that we have less polluted air in general, uh, just because we all stopped going outside. And so there is a little bit less of the nasal congestion, you're feeling stuffy all the time. Um, but now that we're going gradually back to, um, back to work, we may see the air pollutants going up again. And so um, when you couple nasal congestion, nasal stuffiness, along with a more relaxed tongue, and if we are enjoying a, you know, uh, any alcoholic beverage, and where the tongue is even more relaxed, then we have a, the perfect storm, right? So if the tongue's more relaxed, muscles are more relaxed, uh, we may have more breathing problems that night compared to other times. Yeah, wow, great. Great to know all these signs, reasons behind what may happen and why they happen. So I think that can really um, help a lot of our audience going through menopause or have some symptoms of sleep difficulties to help them understand their bodies better. And then they possibly can consider whether they need to see a sleep doctor to get more diagnosed or intervention accordingly. I hope so. I hope that the audience out there, if they are having issues, um, particularly now that we're all sheltering in place still, um, this is a great forum. You know, for them to try to get help if it's not for themselves, certainly for uh, people that they love and th that they know may need some help and guidance. Yes, definitely. Hope so. Thank you very much, Dr. Sure. Yuan, for sharing all your expertise and knowledge with us, with the audience. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. If you have listened to my show before, you may know I always emphasize that sleep is an individual thing. Everyone's sleep difficulties are unique to themselves, and the intervention varies also. Sleep difficulties among menopause are very similarly. There's no one-fit-all method. We really need to understand what our body needs, what really works for us, what doesn't, and then we can figure out how to intervene and how to help ourselves accordingly. Hopefully, this episode really helped you to understand this phenomenon better and give you some ideas where to get started to find the help to get better if this bothers you or your loved ones around you. 
If you want to read more about Dr. Yuan's work or read the transcript of our show, you can go to our show note at deepintosleep.co/episode/zero-three-six. If you want to know more about the CBT for insomnia treatment we offers, you can also find the information on the website at deepintosleep.co. Thank you very much for listening. I will see you next week. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently, and there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk, and our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed. Are you suffering from insomnia? I promise you, the CBTI method in my course will definitely help you. Even if several nights of better sleep, that would be a world-changing experience for you. I have had so many success from my insomnia patients who have taken this course over the years. If you know someone who are struggling with sleep, go to my website and check out my course at deepintosleep.co/insomnia.